Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. You won't be shocked to learn that today's show has two segments. One, a conversation about AI with Dwayne Monroe, who knows as much about politics as he does about computers, and the other, an exploration of Brazil as Lula returns to the presidency with the political economist Alfredo Saad Filho. If your social media environment is anything like mine, the last few weeks have featured a lot of conversation, some of it worried, some of it celebratory, about ChatGPT, an instance of artificial intelligence that can respond to prompts with chunks of plausible and grammatically correct prose. Teachers fear a far greater challenge from plagiarism, journalists fear their replacement by a highly evolved bot, and optimists, given to gee-whiz celebrations of the latest breakthrough, can't contain their delight. The program was developed by OpenAI, a San Francisco-based lab founded in 2015 with funding from, among others, such choice specimens as Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. ChatGPT, the GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, is the latest iteration of a program that debuted in 2015. OpenAI is also responsible for DALI, which uses AI to produce images in response to verbal prompts. In January, Microsoft announced it was investing $10 billion in OpenAI and is incorporating its technology into its previously obscure Bing search engine. What does it all mean? To explain, I turn to Dwayne Monroe, who was on this show back in September 2021, to explain why self-driving cars should remain a fantasy. Dwayne is a veteran software engineer who also has a side gig doing Marxist analyses of the industry. Dwayne Monroe. I got you here to talk about ChatGPT, but now they're a partnership with Microsoft, and Microsoft's previously obscure Bing is in the headlines. Before we start talking about ChatGPT, what do you make of this partnership and the event around it? This is well within my wheelhouse, um, as the old saying goes, because I, I have, have decades of experience tracking, understanding, working with Microsoft technologies, and, and understanding Microsoft as a business. And I, I think that this is extremely, or, or very, I should say, significant. The reason I say that is that OpenAI, prior to the partnership um, or the deepened partnership, because there's been a partnership for quite some time, but the deepened partnership with the $10 billion investment, this partnership and integration of uh, OpenAI's uh, platforms such as ChatGPT, Dolly, into Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud platform, means that the speed at which um, so-called AI tools will proliferate and the potential reach is much greater. Prior to this uh, this merging, so to speak, of, of interests, everyone was talking about these technologies, of course, um, whether in idealized terms or, you know, it's approaching human knowledge. And, and people who are concerned were obviously concerned about the impact of the placement of algorithmic systems into decision-making flows and government and facial recognition and policing and so forth. But these were scattered efforts from different companies offering different services. Microsoft knows how to deploy things at scale across a wide variety of areas of a society, across the globe, actually. And I I think we're we're going to see a lot more spread of, of harms as a consequence. And they have buckets of money. Buckets of money. And unlike Google, who's dependent upon ad revenue and whatever other funny money things that they do, Microsoft has actual cash. An investment of $10 billion is is quite significant. This tells you that, that their intentions are quite big. Now, speaking of Google, aside from search, most of the things they've gotten involved with uh, haven't really played out. <laughs> What's up with them? This is a big problem for Google for exactly that reason. We associate Google with cutting edge technology, super bright young people. The tech industry is uh, forever young. It's like Dorian Gray. Google benefited from, I would say, the first and second of the tech era, the moments of the tech era, in which uh, they presented themselves as a dynamic company doing things at scale that other companies couldn't do. They benefited from the allure of Silicon Valley. Um, However, beneath that veneer, there is a large lumbering organization like any other large lumbering organization that uh, has to pivot in response to, to events. And 
And so they've depended upon search as their primary source of revenue. And um, I think they've been caught flat-footed by what Microsoft has done. I could tell a number of stories of working directly with engineers from Google on on actual projects and, and what I learned about their lack of understanding of what businesses actually want and need, which Microsoft understands at a very deep level. This lack of understanding is why Google has found itself um, in a situation in which they're, they're playing catch up. And then um, this is uh, getting a little further off track, but um, Apple, who has buckets of money as well, um, are they involved in any of this? Apple certainly has been involved in in various AI ventures for quite some time. I mean, Siri represents, of course, one of the ways in which Apple has been involved with algorithmic systems. However, Apple tends to be cagey, cagier than the average for Silicon Valley. It's not quite clear what they're up to. And also, they've had various projects, such as I think it was called Project Titan, which was their self-driving car project. I may be getting the name wrong, but they absolutely have had and may continue to have a self-driving auto project and other projects in which they toss their money into. Apple also, like Microsoft, has actual capital to draw upon. But from them, I, I do not get the sense that they have a coherent plan. Now, you know, there may be surprises in store. And they're notoriously secretive about things too. Exactly. That that's uh, for, for for a company that <laughs> presents itself as uh, sunshine rainbows. They have the secrecy level of the NSA and perhaps more so. <laughs> well, there are days when they have more money in their uh, bank account than the treasury does. So. Yeah, it's it's kind of insane, actually. So chat GPT, there was certainly a lot of hoopla around that over the last few weeks. Uh, people in my line of work, of course, are especially concerned. We feel like uh, now they're going to replace journalists with uh, AI machines. Finally, you know, a machine passes a Turing test, all that business. What do you make of the, those claims to start with before we get into its broader meaning? So the last time we spoke, GPT-3 was all the rage. And GPT-3 and ChatGPT are part of a category of algorithmic system um, called a large language model, which uh, builds its tricks, and they are indeed tricks, from as input having a corpus of text, billions and billions and billions of parameters, and then through a, a complicated mathematical process, vectorizing, that is to say, making tokens or representations of that text, and then through a statistical method, creating an inference or a, a probability engine that allows it to string together text in a way that makes sense to us. The system itself knows nothing about what it's doing. It has no knowledge. Unlike you and I, you know, when we write, even if we're absentmindedly writing, we were still conscious of the fact that, that we are writing and what the words we are writing mean. This is simply assembling text. Now, Writers, of course, are concerned, um, as artists are concerned about Dali, which creates visualizations. They're right to be concerned, but not because the system has the ability to actually replace creative writing, but rather that it will be marketed as having that capacity. There will undoubtedly be publications. There have been publications that have used algorithmic systems to write articles. And so they will think that the owners of these uh, outfits will think that they can replace writers for various things. And that will have an impact upon the income and the prospects for writers. But as I said, it's, it's not a matter of these systems actually writing. You're not going to have a computational Gore Vidal. But what you will have is a flattening of text output. You'll have a, a narrowing of what is presented to fit within the narrow parameters of what these systems can do. You could imagine it replacing Tom Friedman. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that would be quite simple. <laughs> uh, but um, it's, it's basically a magpie, right? Or a plagiarist. It's running yes, around like, precisely right. scraping things off the web and putting them together in plausible chunks. That's precisely right. For example, when, when I got access to ChatGPT, my prompt question was, uh, write a sentence in the style of Captain Ahab from Moby Dick. A creative writer might say, well, I'm not just going to copy Moby Dick. I'm going to write as if I am Ahab, but I might write about my cat rather than the white whale. Well, all ChatGPT did was give me uh, some text from Moby Dick. <laughs> like, okay, all right. all right, that's nice. But the prompt was in the style of, and that's because it doesn't, as I said, it doesn't understand. However, it did have access to text. The query um, was able to cobble together what I was asking for and then present relevant text. Narcissist that I am, my uh, my first prompt uh, to uh, ChatGPT was to write a bio of me. 
And I got major facts wrong, which struck me as really bizarre because all I could have done was plagiarize the Wikipedia article on me and it got it got that wrong. So it's still got some bugs in the system. And not only bugs, but there are, I would say, errors that are uh, part of the emergent properties of, of the mathematics that they employ to create the assembly methodology. And by that, I mean, because it doesn't understand anything, it's just assembling text, there's nothing to stop it from simply assembling text that seems plausible, but is not true. You would think that like an actual library computer, for example, say, well, tell me about Doug Henwood, that that's what it would do. And in fact, you can even do that with Siri or even Alexa, you know, tell me about Doug Henwood. And because it doesn't know anything, it, it all it would do is do like a simple query search. And then probably your Wikipedia article would be presented. So what does this mean for this technology? Um, is this just its early stages and they're going to iron this all out? Or is this a fundamental flaw? It is a fundamental flaw in my view. It is possible, of course, to make the mathematics more sophisticated. And it is possible to add more processing power. However, ChatGPT is built on a supercomputer that Microsoft constructed um, as an extension of the Azure platform called uh, Voyager, which uses many, many thousands of uh, processing elements. And there is a corresponding requirement for power consumption. There is a requirement for cooling because these are in very, very large data centers. And so the question can be asked, how much further can you go with piling on more and more computational hardware to refine the model? Enthusiasts will tell you, well, there's improvements all the time in game processing or graphics processing units that are used for this level of computation. And that's true. There, there are improvements, but nothing is infinite. And as there are improvements in the, the individual performance of processors, more processors are added. So it's, it's kind of a, a robberous of, of activity because there is no awareness. There's no contextual awareness. As with self-driving cars, which are impossible because you cannot get a computational system to understand what it's doing. Um, it is a procedural technology. Uh, the same th same applies uh, for systems like ChatGPT because whatever um, holes are patched, there'll be new holes be because of the lack of contextual knowledge. I'm speaking with the software engineer, Dwayne Monroe. Speaking of self-driving cars, I was really um, surprised to learn recently that humans are actually quite good drivers. Yes. And it's really hard to get a machine to do these sorts of things. And again, is this still some bugs in the system or is this a real uh, structural flaw? That is a structural flaw. There is a, a scientist, cognitive scientist, Gary Marcus, who's done some fantastic work explaining why. There's others as well. I, I believe Melanie Mitchell, another computer scientist, has done some fantastic work detailing why these things are, are not possible. Dr. Marcus is, is sanguine about future prospects. I, I am not as sanguine as he is because uh, we'd have to ask ourselves a few questions, e even if you're unfamiliar with the, t the technology. Is it possible to get into a car form factor, a system that will understand contextually what it is doing? That is to say, not simply using sensors like radar or, or lasers or what have you, and a set of rules such as, you know, um, object is in front of me, stop, but actually know I am driving a vehicle on the ground in the world in New York City, and here's what's going on around me. We have the ability to know many things that are not even at the level of our consciousness. If you are driving, you know that there's a kid on, on, on the left-hand side whose red ball is rolling, has a high probability of rolling into the street. You know that. Because you have heuristics that I believe will be forever or if not forever for a very long time, inaccessible to computational systems, certainly the kind of computational systems that we are building, which are digital. OpenAI's CEO, Sam Altman, has said that the worst case scenario for AI is lights out for all of us. What do you make of that? Uh, yeah, that's the Nick Bostrom-inspired idea of a super intelligent system that grows weary of us um, or sees us as an impediment to whatever its goals are and uh, destroys us or supersedes us. There is no danger of that. If there is a danger of it, it would be in the far future. And in order for that far future to even occur, we would have to have a steady state civilization and there's no indication that, that we're on the road to having a steady state civilization. That a could civilization be would be nice. Or even a civilization, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, I mean, this would be the work of many generations, perhaps even thousands of years of work, of steady work. But even so, with what they're doing now, 
And, and I want, as people listen, to just imagine that, that what's happening with these systems that Altman is talking about are just piles and piles and piles of computers in giant warehouses, just consuming power, generating heat and consuming water. So what he is saying essentially is, is that in one of these data centers or all of these data centers, some kind of emergent consciousness will decide to take over the world. And from what we have, and even from what we can see on the horizon, there's no possibility of that. And no one knows how to even begin the research uh, to uh, program. The example that I use for people is that in 1920, if you talk to a rocket engineer, like Silikovsky in the Soviet Union, for example, he could have told you what it would take to get to the moon. He could do the math because what it would require is a certain level of thrust and so forth to achieve escape velocity from the Earth's atmosphere. In other words, even though the technology to do so did not exist in 1920, the mathematics for getting there, as happened in 1969, was already emerging. When it comes to computation, we're not even anywhere near that. And so Altman's statements are completely empty and self-serving because OpenAI can then say, we are protecting you from this threat that we are posing. I'm sure that optimists will come back with something like this. You know, for example, when I was in college, Yale had this IBM 360. Enormous thing took up giant room. And now my little iPhone is more powerful than that thing. So won't we see the same trajectory over the next uh, 40, 50 years with these giant machines? What the optimists often miss, and I had a conversation with a leftist economist on this very topic on Twitter, and what these optimists often miss is that although it is true that the IBM 360 was gigantic and the iPhone is small, it is still the same principles of computation. In other words, the iPhone is doing essentially the same thing that the 360 was doing, just in a smaller form factor because it became possible to create uh, ever smaller, ever more subtle computational elements. However, as I said, the line between the two, the two categories of devices is, is quite clear. To go from the iPhone with its, you know, its, its micro, micro miniature circuitry to a thinking machine, well, that has nothing to do necessarily with the patterns of improvement that we've seen thus far, which is greater processing capacity, more miniaturization, but as I said, the exact same computational substrate. To conclude this, let's look at the dark side. You've alluded to this uh, to some degree, but let's uh, develop it. What sinister uses is this technology going to be put to? So there's a number of dangers. I'm starting with the insertion of computational systems, algorithmic systems in decision-making flows, by which I mean in private entities, in say an insurance company, determining uh, whether or not you should receive uh, coverage in hospitals, determining who should be prioritized for care in government, um, identifying you know who's committing fraud on benefits. And these are all real world um, situations that we're already seeing. And the danger there is not only that the algorithmic system is being deployed to do this, to make decisions according to a set of rules without human intervention, but that the fact that these uh, systems have been deployed in this fashion removes culpability from the actual responsible people. Uh, Apple did this uh, a little while ago when Apple released their credit card. It's a great fanfare. There's not so much fanfare about it now, I notice. But when they released their credit card, there were people who were reporting that they were turned down. And there was one case of, I believe it was a woman who was worth several million who was turned down, her application was declined. And Apple's response was, well, the algorithm has decided. Obviously, a, a person of means, you know, who's turned down for that credit card, you know, they can, they probably have a, a black MX or something, it doesn't matter, they have access to resources. But imagine that's a similar declaration of the algorithm has decided in a court case, um, or uh, the examples I've already offered in, you know, in healthcare coverage and policing and so forth. These are the dangers because now what you have is a system or a series of systems, not just one system, deployed across various areas of, of our lives being used, as I said, to prevent or rather to obscure from us who's really responsible. And this is a powerful tool for, for governments and, and for private entities to confuse people. And now for me, of course, as a, as a technologist and for people um, who are trying to stay sharp on this, at least you're aware that there are people. But I, I'm concerned about those who don't have 
the background or don't have access to information, they may find themselves or all of us find ourselves trapped in these algorithmic uh, systems and things that are now annoyances for some people, like being in a phone system and you can't reach a person becomes a life and death matter. And then the uh, the sort of gee whiz, credulous reception that so many people have given this stuff, that, that doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. And it actually, it, it, it serves the, the propaganda aims of the, the governments and the private entities that are promoting um, this technology. Um, one of the most common discussion points that I get into on Twitter about this, and I try not to discuss too many things on Twitter because, you know, it's not really productive of your time. But um, it was, I think, just earlier today, actually, someone... Uh, responded to my um, critique of ChatGPT by saying that, well, it, it's quite impressive. This is always the response from enthusiasts. Well, it's very impressive. And I said, well, that's where you stop. Guys like you always start by saying it's very impressive, and then you stop. You don't go any further to look at, at impact. My position is that we need to stop being impressed. And Emily Bender, who's a computer scientist, also has said, you know, she's written a brilliant article called um, Resist the Urge to be Impressed by AI, which makes precisely this point, that the more impressed we are, the less sharp we are, um, the, the less we have the ability to dissect and, and understand what is being done to us. We're doing their sales jobs for them. That's precisely right. Yes. And, and it's fine. Well, it's not fine, but it's understandable for some chap in Silicon Valley with a high salary. Well, it's maybe a few fewer of those people now, unfortunately for them. But um, it, it's fine for someone who has a vested interest like a Sam Altman to do this. But it, it makes no sense for a person who has no vested interest and who is indeed the target of these efforts to to be so enthusiastic. I, I What I'm asking for from people is a bit more cynicism, actually. I was a skeptical software engineer, Dwayne Monroe. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Riley Keyboard Study 2 version 6 Max Cooper remix, performed by the pianist Bruce Brubaker, my former neighbor when I lived in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. As the Bandcamp equivalent of Liner Notes puts it, on his Codex album, American pianist Bruce Brubaker faced off Terry Riley's Keyboard Study 2 from 1965 and pieces from the Codex Faenza, a 15th century manuscript that is one of the earliest collections of keyboard sheet music. Next, Lula's return to the presidency of Brazil. Last week I ran two interviews, mostly focusing on his proposal for a common currency arrangement with Argentina. This is a much broader look at him, his appalling predecessor Jair Bolsonaro, and the Brazilian political scene in general. Lula, full name Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, came up through union organizing and the Workers' Party, known by its Portuguese initials PT, to become president of the country from 2003 to 2010. His successor, Dilma Rousseff, was overthrown through a legal coup in 2016, and Lula himself was jailed on bogus corruption charges in 2018 and 19. He won re-election as Brazil's president last October and took office on January 1st. Here with more is Alfredo Sadfilo, who has been in this show many times before. He's a professor of political economy and international development at King's College, London. Alfredo Sadfilo. So what are your impressions of uh, Lula's return to the presidency so far? So far, Lula has done remarkably well. For someone who won the presidential elections by a margin of only 1%, Lula has come into power with very uh, ambitious plans, plans to address the problem of hunger in Brazil that Lula's previous administrations had dealt with quite effectively and almost eliminated extreme poverty in the country. And then extreme poverty returned with the administrations after the coup that removed President Dilma Rousseff. So Lula is addressing 
that by reactivating uh, social programs. He is also dealing more recently with the central bank. Brazilian central bank is independent from government. The president of the central bank was appointed under the previous administration led by President Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, so he's someone uh, of a political inclination that is completely different from Lula's own uh, inclination. And the new administration has picked a fight with the central bank. And Lula is complaining that interest rates are too high, that the central bank is undermining his government, that it's not possible to achieve economic growth in this way. I would have thought that this is a very problematic fight for Lula to pick because the media is on the side of the central bank. The mainstream media supports independent central banks, inflation targets, uh, that sort of policy. And Lula is confronting that. So he came out very aggressively uh, and more left-wing than he was in his previous administrations. So if you're looking at Brazil as a country that can offer an example of unconventional, heterodox left-wing policies, Lula might be pointing in that direction. He does face a pretty hostile rest of government. The Congress is uh, in unfriendly hands. A lot of the governorships are in unfriendly hands. How's he been dealing with that? He doesn't have a very free hand here. No, he, he does not. About 70% of uh, state governors uh, representing about 75% of Brazilian GDP were elected in opposition to Lula. Now, the federal government has resources uh, available, and those governments have tended to toe the line with Lula, perhaps with the exception of the governor of the state of Sao Paulo. The state of Sao Paulo is the richest state in the federation, and Sao Paulo has a lot of political autonomy as a consequence of its economic resources. So that governor is a little bit out of line, and perhaps thinking of his own political future. And because of the coup attempt on the 8th of January, Lula was very, very good at bringing together all the state governors to Brasilia and bringing together the speakers of both chambers of Congress and the Supreme Court and bringing the three powers in the Republic together and making a statement against the coup attempt and then trying to hold this coalition together for democracy uh, and against the uh, right-wing uh, coup attempt. But it is very difficult. The federal government is not supported by most of the state governments, and Lula could count on the support perhaps of one-third of Congress. The Brazilian political system is unbelievably fragmented, more than 20 political parties having representation in Congress. And it is essentially impossible, and it hasn't happened in 40 years of democracy, that a political party would have a majority in either house of Congress. This just doesn't happen. So you need, as president, and all presidents have had this problem, you need to build coalitions across political parties. These are not vehicles for different political ideas. In most cases, not all, but in most cases, the political parties in Brazil are vehicles for economic and financial interests. So it is very difficult for the president to bring different political parties together in a coalition because essentially everyone is out there looking for their own personal interests. Now, Lula has built a massive coalition. It was initially an anti-fascist coalition. It became a coalition for democracy as soon as uh, he took power. It's a very heterogeneous government that has, notionally speaking, majority in Congress, but they wouldn't. that majority is not very solid. Lula is working on that, but it will be a challenge that he will have to confront every day for the entirety of his administration. He will have to fight every day to keep that majority in Congress uh, together in a Congress that is very right-wing. It's the most right-wing Congress since the restoration of democracy in Brazil about 40 years ago. So it, it, it will be very challenging for him. But if there is one human being who can do this, that is Lula. What is the base of that sort of right-wing politics? Or more, more narrowly, what is the base for Bolsonaro personally? But what, what is the base for the, that, that kind of uh, politics more broadly, both at the elite level and at the non-elite level? It's um, a contingent coalition of very different interests. A very strong part of the right-wing alliance is agribusiness. And what agribusiness wants is absolute freedom to do whatever they want in their lands and then to sell the, their produce uh, at the highest price in, in global markets. 
they tend to be very closely aligned with the what the what is called the bullet uh, lobby, the lobby of the gun manufacturers and gun users, people who have very similar ideas in in many ways to the gun lobby in the United States. And that was an important part of the Bolsonaro's base, but he also encouraged gun ownership, right? He did, and changed legislation several times to liberalize gun ownership in Brazil. That uh, grew uh, enormously, and then gun clubs also proliferated around the country. It was something uh, remarkable that did not exist before. You can now buy heavy weapons in Brazil, which is what, what it was not the case before Bolsonaro became president. So these are two interest groups. Another one very, very important and that gives a mass base for the far right is the evangelical Pentecostal uh, churches. Some of them are very large and have millions of uh, faithful and others are very, very small, literally corner shops or corner churches that group only very small numbers of people. Most of them tend to be not all of them, but most of them tend to be very right-wing, selling the idea of what they call in Brazil a theology of prosperity, by which if you behave in particular ways, then God will reward you with wealth uh, in this world, and then presumably heaven. This group of people are very closely connected to very small entrepreneurs, people who believe in self-sufficiency. They have fed the machinery of those churches, contributing huge amounts of money, turning those churches that were originally poor and very small uh, 30 or 40 years ago, turning them into real economic empires with the leaders of those organizations enjoying absolutely lavish lifestyles extracted from some of the poorest people in Brazil who are led into contributing to those uh, organizations. Another one is a good chunk of the Brazilian middle class. Brazilian middle class has uh, suffered economically over the past decades with the decline of industry, with the decline of jobs in in, in the public sector, the decline of managerial positions, and their political reaction has been to shift right to support the coup against President Dilma Rousseff and to support Jair Bolsonaro as well. Now, this is numerically not a a vast uh, number of people, but they are very influential. These are the people who write for newspapers, the people who uh, populate the bureaucracy of the state apparatus and so on. And they have tended to be violently against Lula, against the left and uh, supporting uh, Bolsonaro. And behind it all, there's the military. Brazilian military left power in 1985 after 21 years when Brazil was governed by a succession of military administrations. But the military came back very strongly under Bolsonaro. About 8,000 military officers took positions in the civil service under Bolsonaro and gained all sorts of economic advantages and political advantages as well. Bolsonaro expressed uh, some nostalgia for the military uh, dictatorship, right? Yes, yes, repeatedly, not only for for the military government, but also for torture. He has advocated torture and the execution of political rivals repeatedly over the years. Jair Bolsonaro was always a mediocre politician, a completely marginalized politician, someone who never presented a single legislative project in the Chamber of Deputies, even though he was there for about 28 years. But he never presented anything. What he did was to specialize in making outrageous statements. So he would just randomly say something absolutely outrageous. It would explode in the media, his name would become known, and then he would disappear again for a couple of years. Then he comes back, says something outrageous, and the cycle repeats itself. In doing this, even though he wasn't doing anything as representative, he was keeping himself uh, in the headlines and kept his name alive. When the opportunity arose, he launched himself very vigorously in a presidential campaign. In that, it is said that he was supported by Steve Bannon. There is a personal friendship between Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaro's sons, his three sons who are all politicians, and Bannon. The rumor is that Bannon directed the political campaign that Bolsonaro fronted. Trump, I find him repulsive, but I understand how he might have an appeal to some people. He's got some charisma. He can be very funny sometimes. I don't get that feeling from Bolsonaro. He doesn't seem to have that uh, kind of personality. What was the secret of his success aside from saying outrageous things? Bolsonaro is a, a very disgusting character. 
He's not particularly smart in the things that he says. He's not particularly perceptive. He's not funny. He continues to specialize in saying outrageous things. He condenses the worst traits of Brazilian society, a society that abolished slavery very late, only towards the very end of the 19th century, and that has retained within itself the drive for exclusivity and for exclusion, society that is incredibly racist even today, and that thrives on social difference and inequality. And I think Bolsonaro represents all those defects, someone who is overtly prejudiced against the weak, uh, someone who is misogynistic, someone who is a racist in every way, uh, someone who says absolutely horrendous things in the media without any shame. And I think that reverberates, that resonates with a good chunk of Brazilians, because that's what they say in the bar. That's, that's what they say between friends. And now they find a politician who says those same things and think, wow, what I thought was legitimate, what I thought was, was right. Uh, this guy reflects what I genuinely think. Someone who gets 49% of the vote has got genuine mass appeal. We have to recognize that that's the case. Where are the upper classes on this? Divided. In the Bolsonaro's first election in 2018, they were absolutely solid behind him because they wanted to get rid of the, the Workers' Party. There was not a single a significant business person who came out in support of the PT candidate at that time, Fernando Haddad, because Lula had been imprisoned at that point. At this time, there was a little bit more of a division. Lula represents a national project. He represents, and he implemented in his administration, a project of industrialization, of expansion of Brazilian manufacturing, a project of expansion of Brazilian capital abroad. And he did a lot to support the expansion of Brazilian capital in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa when he was president uh, before. So some sections of Brazilian capital support that project and are against uh, finance and financialization and very high interest rates. But the majority are still aligned with the far right. They want complete autonomy to do whatever they want. They do not want a government that can oversee their operations, a government that can regulate their operations. It is predatory capitalism. It's not a group of people that thinks very far ahead and wants a country that functions well, a country of citizens, a country with a distribution of income that is more sustainable even over the long term, a country that has more political stability. The perception seems to be to plunder as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and not care at all about the future or about any concept of a nation. That sounds very much like the subset of the American capitalist class that is behind Trump and Trump-style politics. Um, private equity types, asset strippers, people who just want to take the money and run. That sort of thing. And in Brazil, the agribusiness lobby is, is that. The people who are uh, destroying the Amazon rainforest, that's who they are. Yes. I'm speaking with the political economist Alfredo Sadfilo. Now, what about that January 8th, which is very much like our January 6th? Who are the forces behind it? Why did it happen? And what does it portend for the future? The investigations are proceeding, but it seems that Jair Bolsonaro is absolutely fixated in remaining in power. Bolsonaro is terribly afraid that he will be arrested at some point. He was afraid already. He's afraid that his sons will be arrested for corruption, for more recently allegations of genocide against the Yanomami native populations in the north of the country prosecuted and possibly jailed for failures, systematic failures during the COVID pandemic and much more. So Bolsonaro was desperate to remain in power. And in this, he was supported by a good fraction of the military. But their protests were very disorganized. It was not like in the United States where Donald Trump took the front line in resisting the presidential elections that favored Biden. Jair Bolsonaro missed the opportunity to protest immediately after the results came in. They had already signaled that they didn't like the electronic voting system. That is an excellent voting system they have in, in Brazil. <laughs> we envy it here. I guess. It is a wonderful system. There, there has been never any proven allegation that the system was flawed in any significant way. And the results come out very, very quickly in a couple of hours. I can't imagine the political tension that would have happened in Brazil if that counting process had taken very long. So Bolsonaro was not able to build a coalition against the voting system. 
He then kept quiet and lost both rounds of the election. Maybe he thought he was going to win. I don't know. All the opinion polls were pointing to a much wider margin for Lula. And almost everyone was totally surprised when the margin was so small. Bolsonaro then disappeared. The rumor was that he was depressed, locked into his dark room uh, in the presidential palace. But he lost time to organize some kind of reaction and ended up fleeing to the United States two or three days before Lula was inaugurated. And by doing that, Bolsonaro lost the advantage of being there to lead something. Well, and that, that picture of him eating at a KFC in Florida, that makes him look pathetic. That's not what you'd want to have from a bull leader challenging his successor. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely correct. So Bolsonaro leaves the country, but he's still very quietly. He doesn't come out uh, overtly, but very quietly incentivizes people to camp before or in in front of army headquarters in different parts of, of Brazil, trying to create an impasse that forces in uh, in inverted commas the army to come out and stage a coup. But why would the army do that and then give it power back to Jair Bolsonaro? This makes no sense at all. So the entire notion that Bolsonaro would lead a military coup, it beggars belief. The military are not sophisticated political operators, but they're not that stupid. Bolsonaro had just lost an, ele- an election. They could not provide evidence of electoral fraud, why would they sponsor Bolsonaro's return to power? A group of people then decides that what they're going to do is to invade the presidential palace, the the houses of Congress and the Supreme Court, all three conveniently located in the same square. They march from their camp in front of the general headquarters of the army. They march for eight kilometers unimpeded, in fact, escorted by the local police. The advertisement was for one to two million people to congregate in Brasilia. Those people do not materialize. They have at most 20,000 people. Instead of stopping and thinking, they decide to go ahead. Clearly, the police and the army units that should have been protecting the presidential palace, they were supporting this uh, coup attempt. They allowed uh, people to cross the police lines and invade the three palaces. Now, this was, again, a tactical mistake. It was an overreach anyway, but it was a tactical mistake because if they had invaded only one of the palaces, say the presidential palace, to protest against the election of Lula, then the other two powers, the legislature and the judiciary, could have become been more neutral. But since the vandals invaded all three at the same time, that unified the state. All the forces of the state came out united against the coup attempt. So there was a succession of tactical errors on the part of Bolsonaro, who clearly was directing the whole thing, a succession of errors that showed that Bolsonaro is not a smart political operator. Now he's facing legal jeopardy in multiple fronts. Many of his supporters are in jail. Uh, Many of the funders of that whole uh, process of coup uh, have uh, had their monies uh, frozen. This investigation could last a long time and embarrass a good number of powerful people. Bolsonaro is saying that he will return to Brazil uh, from the United States. If he does that, there's a good likelihood that he will end up in jail in the near future. What does this portend for the future? If Lula wants to uh, protect the Amazon and uh, do some income redistribution, these forces will not be pleased. They will not be pleased, and and there and there will be problem because clearly the far right has got a mass base. The underlying difficulty is that there is no engine to drive the Brazilian economy. If the economy would turn uh, around and and start generating jobs and income, then Lula would have a lot more political space to implement those reforms. But there is no driver. The global economy is not a driver. The government has maxed out on it, on its fiscal spending unless they change the legislation. There is not a lot of consumption growth on the cards. So it is a bit difficult to see where the fuel is going to come from to push the Brazilian economy ahead. And that is a serious limitation for Lula's political ambitions. But yeah, the last time he was in office, there was a uh, commodity boom. The entire pink tide was financed by the commodity boom and Chinese demand for uh, basic commodities. That's certainly not the case now. No, it is not. And this this is an 
absolutely fundamental difference between Lula's first administration and the second administration and this one now. In the early 2000s, mid-2000s, there was a global commodity boom, as you, as you said, and now there simply isn't anything like that. There's a, there's a global crisis. So how Lula is going to compensate and find some form of driving force is difficult to see. He has as I mentioned before, picked a fight with the central bank demanding lower interest rates. He is pushing to extend more credit to households, but that will be limited in scope because Brazilian households are already entangled in very high levels of debt. A lot of it coming from Lula's previous administrations. If personal debt will be sufficient is not clear. The government does not have a lot of space to increase the minimum wage because the minimum wage creates demand immediately, of course, but it also creates a, a fiscal, an immediate fiscal cost that is difficult to accept politically at the moment. But that is exactly the challenge, the, the most fundamental challenge that Lula has and with implications for everything else that he may be able to, to achieve. Now, you said that uh, in his earlier administration, he uh, tried to promote industrialization, which would certainly be an alternative to depending upon uh, exports of basic commodities. Uh, what are the possibilities there? He's very committed to that. He has put, as president of the Brazilian Development Bank, uh, someone who is very committed to industrialization. The problem is the lack of a social base for this. It is absolutely staggering to see what used to be a very strong industrial uh, manufacturing uh, bourgeoisie in Brazil that until the 1980s was very committed to a project of national uh, manufacturing sector development, some sectors with significant technological innovations uh, being produced in the country, they absolutely abdicated from that role and became speculators and became attached to transnational capital. So Lula will have to push and find allies amongst the manufacturing groups uh, in Brazil. And that is not proving to be very easy. So the very powerful Federation of Industries of the state of Sao Paulo, the richest, the most industrialized state in Brazil, that is in opposition to him. And what they want is easier speculation and they want a more neoliberalism. The neoliberalism bit has already been delivered. The reforms of labor le legislation and the reforms of social security that were implemented in the past five years or so have liberalized the labor market in Brazil to a staggering extent, uh, and they've left workers completely unprotected and, in inverted commas, flexible. What else do they want is very difficult to see. There's very limited scope for additional reforms. Uh, what they don't want is more a more powerful working class. They don't want more powerful trade unions. And Lula is associated with that coming, as he does, from a trade union uh, background. There is, of course, this uh, talk of a common currency zone with Argentina, and leaving aside the details of that, it did sound like he wanted to promote uh, greater cooperation across the continent. How does that figure in his uh, politics? It figures very prominently. Lula, last time uh, when he was president, he was president between 2003 and 2010, he pushed very hard for integration in Latin America. He wants to have some counterweight to the United States, and he wants Brazil to take a more prominent position worldwide. His historical ambition has been that Brazil gets a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. Uh, that uh, seemed more realistic 10 years ago than it does now. It's a national project. The first thing that he must deliver is improved relationships with uh, Argentina, Brazil's large uh, and closest neighbor, and the reactivation of Mercosur that has been left abandoned for a considerable amount of time, particularly under Jair Bolsonaro, who privileged his relationship to the United States and, in any case, the biggest trading partner of all uh, Latin American countries, most if not all Latin American countries, is now China. It's not even the United States. In order to push Brazilian manufactured products into Latin America, which was the traditional approach, they are having to fight for markets against uh, Chinese manufacturers when China is already the main importer for the agricultural and mineral products that are the area of specialization of most Latin American countries. So the space for Brazil to take a more prominent role in the region is a little bit more constrained than it was before. And even in sub-Saharan Africa, Brazil has uh, something to offer, but there's a lot of competition for sub-Saharan Africa now. 
with Western interests, Chinese, Russian interests, uh, fighting very vigorously for space in that continent. But this is, again, something Lula can offer to his own industrialists. And he can say, look, I, I can open those markets for you. Just come in with me. Last time around, they went in. This time, I, I'm not so sure. And the United States can't be happy with a lot of this. So they're certainly not going to want to see uh, too much of an orientation towards countries other than the United States. But also, um, you know, Lula has not joined in the anti-Russian bandwagon. Um, any sign of uh, displeasure coming from D.C.? Not yet. There is an alliance of convenience there because Biden and Lula both want to defeat their own internal far-right enemies. So there is something in common. Lula is going to Washington uh, very soon, and the expectation is that he will want something from Biden in the form of Jair Bolsonaro, uh, and Biden may want something from Lula in the form of contribution to the war uh, on Ukraine and perhaps a more compliant attitude uh, within uh, the Americas. We will see. But this has been billed as the most important um, foreign trip that Lula has ever made. And he traveled quite a lot when he was president uh, before. So we'll see where that goes. And and hopefully this alliance of convenience will hold. A defeat for Lula would be a a victory for Trump. And I'm, I'm sure Biden doesn't want to see that. Being an American, I have to ask the hope question. Should we get our hopes up or um, should we keep them contained? I think we can get our hopes up. Yes. Uh, uh, What has been happening in Brazil is one of the few areas of good news in a world that is, frankly, miserable these days with bad news coming from all sorts of directions. Brazil at least is pointing with limits, but it's pointing to a good direction, a government that is taking responsibility for its citizens, that is reactivating social programs, that is protecting unprotected native populations in the Amazon, and that may be able to offer higher wages and a measure of social protection for the poor majority of the population. So I am optimistic that something good can, can come out of this administration. How's Alfredo Saadfilo, Professor of Political Economy and International Development at King's College London. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, one of four tracks posted to Bandcamp. This is a very heavy Bandcamp show. As a teaser from Berksonist's forthcoming eponymous album due March 3rd. Till next week, bye.